This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And today we are going to talk about a subject that was requested by listener Nathan. Uh, And this is a story that will come up. You'll see it kind of in online articles sometimes as this tale of gluttony that's, you know, just amazing. And it is that. But really, at its heart, it's a medical mystery. And it's really quite tragic at that. Uh, Some of this also, we should warn you, features some gross-ish bodily function stuff, so be warned. Uh, there's also a little bit that might be tricky if you are sensitive to animals being harmed. I know I am, so uh, we're not going to get too graphic with it, and we're not going to linger on that, but we are going to mention the details of it in that regard. But if you are very, very squeamish, this may not be the episode for you. And before we start talking about the actual person we'll be discussing, we're going to talk for just a minute about polyphagia. So this is sometimes also called hyperphagia which basically terms mean excessive hunger or excessive eating or a really markedly increased appetite. These can be, uh, regardless of which term you're using, an indicator of diabetes because the body isn't properly converting glucose into energy. So the body remains hungry and it keeps seeking the energy it needs from additional su- sustenance. So you, you eat more and more. You have a ongoing insatiable appetite. But that is not the only thing that polyphagia is linked to. It can also be um, part of any number of other triggers and bigger issues, including stress and depression, hyperthyroidism, as well as medical conditions such as Klein-Levin syndrome and Prader-Willi syndrome. 
But some cases of this are really extreme. So we're not talking about eating a lot because you've started really working out or eating a whole pie because you are upset about something. Uh, These are really cases where the person's hunger can never be sated and the volume and the nature of the things that the person is eating really become pretty mind boggling. So we are talking today about terrar, or terrar, if you want to English it up a little bit more, uh, who was a French gentleman. And most of the information that we have about him is from an 1805 publication of Journal de Médecin in a piece entitled Memoire sur la Palophagie. Uh, and this case study was written by Pierre-François Percy, who examined Terrar several times throughout the man's life. So just to give a little bit of background, because, I mean, often when we're reading old medical papers, <laughs> sometimes there's some questionable stuff in them from before the days of evidence-based medicine. So we just want to establish this guy's credentials a little bit. Pierre-Francois Percy was this respected surgeon in France in the late 1700s and early 1800s. He served as an army surgeon starting in 1782, and he invented a trolley that would carry medical supplies and nursing staff directly onto battlefields for treatment of wounded soldiers without having to take them away to another location. He also invented the surgical quiver. So this was a carrying kit that held a tourniquet and 11 different surgical instruments, which a surgeon could wear on his shoulders, free up his hands, have all that stuff easy to access. Yeah, I wanted to find a picture of one, and I didn't manage to do so. I'm sure there's got to be one out there, but I would love to see it. Uh, Percy was made an officer of the Legion of Honor in 1804, and he only left his military medical career when he developed chronic eye inflammation that just made it not really feasible to stay basically on active duty as a doctor. Uh, he then went on to oversee health inspection services and to teach at the Faculty of Medicine in Paris. And after his death, he was called the father of military surgeons. And thanks to Monsieur Percy, we have medical notes on the man known as Terrar, but we still have huge gaps in our knowledge on this unusual patient's background. Terrar was born in Lyon, France in the 1770s, and we don't know his name at birth or really anything about his family because he left home when he was very young. This allegedly was because his parents were unable to provide food for him and they turned him out of the family home. The apocryphal story of the origin of his name suggests that it's basically a nickname after a sort of onomatopoetic phrase that was used in France at the time, which kind of went bom bom terrar, and that referred to a a big explosion. So sort of like saying kaboom. Uh, And the explosions in this explanation were his constant bursts of flatulence. So to survive on his own as a boy... Terrar would beg, he would sometimes even steal, but he was really never able to gather enough food to keep uh, himself filled up. He was, from a very young age, could never really uh, meet his appetite's needs. And by the time he was 17, he weighed barely 100 pounds or 45 kilograms, so very lean. He could also, at this point, allegedly eat as much as a quarter of beef in a day at this point. So that is literally one quarter of the beef animal. If you purchase a quarter of beef today, it's usually estimated as being somewhere between 120 and 150 pounds. That's 54 to 68 kilograms. So once you lose some of that weight to the inedible sections like the bone, etc., he was basically capable of eating just about the equivalent of his own weight in a given day. Eventually, he joined up with a group of traveling entertainers, and he was able to put his unending hunger to work as part of the show. He would challenge spectators to basically 
feed him enough to be full. So he ate huge quantities of apples in mere minutes. He would even consume things that weren't food, like corks and flints. And he enlisted as a soldier with the French Revolution Army during the War of the First Coalition against Austria and Prussia. And in an effort to ensure that he was getting enough food, Terrar would do all of the work of his fellow soldiers in the battalion in return for portions of their rations, usually quite a lot of them. But it simply wasn't enough, and his energy really lagged. He became very weak and ill, and he was eventually admitted to a military hospital in Sultz. The medical staff at this military hospital immediately increased his rations fourfold. And while he was in the hospital, he would also eat any food that other patients had been unable or unwilling to eat. He managed to get some kitchen scraps as well. But even so, none of this was enough. He continued to be hungry all the time, so much so that he would break into the hospital pharmacy and eat anything that he could get his hands on. And we're going to talk next uh, about some additional treatment that he had at the military hospital and how his examination by doctors actually led to a strange and rather brief career move. But first, we're going to have a word from one of our sponsors. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and take away lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host The Bobby Bones Show, and I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app. to our story. It was during this treatment at a military hospital that Tarar met, among other doctors, Baron Percy. And this is the man who serves as the primary source of information about him. He penned, uh, he being Dr. Percy, penned a very thorough and pretty unsettling description of the patient in his memoirs on the case. And it reads, his cheeks were sallow and furrowed by long and deep wrinkles. On distending them, he could hold in them as many as a dozen eggs or apples. His mouth was very large. He had hardly any lips. He had all his teeth. The molars were much worn away and the color of their enamel streaked like marble. 
The space between the jaws, when they were fully separated, measured about four inches. In this state, with the head inclined backwards, the mouth and esophagus formed a rectilinear canal, into which a cylinder of a foot in circumference could be introduced without touching the palate. He often stank to such a degree that he could not be endured within the distance of twenty paces. He was subject to a flux from the bowels, and his dejections were fetid beyond all conception. When he had not eaten copiously within a short time, the skin of his belly would wrap almost around his body. When he was well satiated with food, the vapor from his body increased. His cheeks and his eyes became a vivid red. A brutal somnolence and a sort of hebetude came over him while he digested. He was in this state troubled with noisy belchings and made, in moving his jaw, some motions like those of deglutition. Another quote from Monsieur Percy about Terrar goes like this. Let a person imagine all that domesticated and wild animals, the most filthy and ravenous, are capable of devouring, and they may form some idea of the appetite as well as the wants of Tarara. And this likening of Tarar's tastes to the most filthy and ravenous animals is due to the fact that he developed a fondness for both rotted meat and very, very fresh meat. This is where it gets a bit difficult for animal lovers in the crowd, including, frankly, both of us. So great and voracious was this man's appetite that he eventually took to eating live animals in an effort to sustain himself. He is said to have eaten a live cat in front of an army physician named Dr. Laurence, and much in the way that a wild animal would was the way he approached eating this cat. And then afterward, he produced a hairball of the cat's fur. And as part of his uh, treatment there at the hospital, they were kind of testing what sort of things he would eat. Uh, so cats were not his only live diet. He also would eat dogs, snakes, eels, and lizards. Uh, he was apparently very fond of serpents, swallowing them whole without chewing. Uh, there's one description that describes him as sort of crushing the head with his jaw and then swallowing the whole thing. The doctors at the military hospital were so completely fascinated with Tarar that they concocted massive meals to feed him as they observed. He was once fed a feast the size that you might prepare for more than a dozen men, and he devoured it all in its entirety. At one meal, he downed four gallons of milk in addition to two full-sized meat pies. If you ever heard about challenges where people try to chug a single gallon of milk in one go, you know it's incredibly difficult and frankly dangerous, so please don't try it. So four at once on top of a very substantial meal is truly astonishing. Yeah, it's kind of one of those moments where when you really think about it, it kind of can turn your stomach. So don't think too hard on that. Uh, And when he would eat these immense portions, Tarar's belly, all that skin that Percy had written could wrap around him when he hadn't eaten, would become distended. And he would, as mentioned, sleep for a while very, very deeply as he digested. This is one of those things that seems... So far-fetched that, like, part of me wonders, is this a giant hoax perpetuated by, like, multiple physicians at the same time? But, like, there's so much primary source documentation describing him that that seems like it would have been a colossal feat. Yeah. I mean, we don't have a ton compared to some things, but for medical issues of an era for one patient to have so many people kind of involved and commenting on it. It's fairly substantiated and completely horrifying. But, uh, uh, yeah, it's I, I, I can't imagine what it would have been like for a bunch of doctors to be puzzling out what the heck is going on with this person and trying to come up with ways to test it. 
Yeah, especially given how relatively, especially given where we were in medical history, basically. Yeah. So, Tarar's unique condition, unsurprisingly, intrigued both the doctors and the military quite greatly. They tested and studied him, and eventually it was determined that he might have potential as a smuggler or a courier. He was given a wooden box that contained a message and instructed to swallow it. And once the box had been swallowed, he was sent across the border into Prussia on his first mission disguised as a peasant. The idea was that he would pass the box and then hand it off to an imprisoned French colonel that the Prussians had captured. Once the colonel had read the message, he would send a reply back to France in the exact same way by putting it in the box, which Terrar would then swallow. And for a quick contextual aside on the War of the First Coalition, uh, in June of 1791, King Louis XVI and his family had attempted to flee France, and they were captured near the Austrian border. In September of that year, Austria and Prussia issued the Declaration of Pilnitz, which formally proclaimed support for King Louis XVI in the revolution and was a move against the revolutionaries of France. So at that point, that's sort of how this war came about. There were some problems with this plan of using Terrar to move sensitive information, though. He could easily consume almost anything and smuggle it, but that really didn't uh, translate into making him a good spy. He could only speak French and did not speak any German, so he really wasn't able to smoothly navigate Prussia by himself. He also drew a lot of attention to himself by reacting strangely when people tried to talk to him. He wasn't particularly stealthy. People actually called on military authorities to report him because he was acting so strangely. So he wound up being captured outside of Landau. And initially, it seemed as though Terrar might actually have some fortitude for espionage, despite not having maybe the skills to move about in a foreign land. Uh, in his first 24 hours as a captive, he gave up no information, despite the fact that he was being whipped and threatened with death repeatedly. But eventually he was broken, and he unfurled this bizarre tale of the secret document that was lurking somewhere in his digestive tract. Once he passed the box in exactly the natural way that you're probably thinking, it was seized by the Prussian forces, who had been waiting for it since their captive told them this story. It turned out that this first mission, though, had really just been a test of whether it was a viable way to move information. There was nothing of value in the message in the box. The failed spy was sent back to France, but not until after he had been beaten several more times and even put in a noose as though they were going to hang him. This was basically the end of his spy career. Yeah, the whole noose thing was apparently a big joke. Like, Prussian officers stood there laughing while they watched this man panic, thinking he was going to die. Uh, so, this is a failed, failed mission all around. Um, and in the next segment, we're going to talk a little bit about Tarar's desperate hope that someone could finally cure him of his constant hunger. But before we do, we're going to pause for another word from a sponsor. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. <laughs> yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. 
Uh, our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. There's a city far away. A fiction podcast. The richest, most powerful place on earth. On an epic scale. Tumon Bay. Tumon Bay. A vast empire threatened by rebellion. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place or we will die too. The truth makes us strong. Tuman Bay is our destiny. History and fantasy collide. They are among us. Who? First a few, and now many. From creators John Scott Dryden and Mike Walker. The only thing I ask of you is total and complete loyalty. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Bay! Listen to all episodes of Tuman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. to the life of Tarar. The next significant uh, event in that life took place a few years later. He was once again in a hospital for study, and during this time, he was visited again by Monsieur Percy. His appetite was as intense as it had ever been, and he had started eating this is gross, turns my stomach a little bit to say it, he had started eating used bandages to try to stay full. It is gross, and it's one of those things that when I was doing the research, my first thought was yuck, and then I was like, oh, heartbreaking. Yeah. Just to reach this point where you will consume anything because you are so tired of being hungry. And this is, as you can imagine, the point where Tarar was really exhausted at trying to keep pace with his own appetite. And he wanted desperately to be cured of this affliction. So just about any theory or idea that anyone could come up with to try to treat him and get rid of this problem was tested. First, he was dosed with opium uh, that turned out to be no help. And then a combination of tobacco pills and sour wine was administered. But once again, his appetite was unabated. And then a diet of boiled eggs was prescribed, though the patient was dubious of that plan. He did try it, but it didn't, again, seem to help in any way. In the meantime, he was supplementing the food that the doctors were giving him on his own. He would sneak out of the hospital and roam the streets to try to find more food. He ate scraps from butcher shops. He picked through garbage. He allegedly competed with street dogs and rats for sustenance. And even when he stayed inside the hospital, he was still constantly looking for opportunities to eat because they just could not get him to a point where he could be comfortable or not just plagued by this ravenous sensation. So in addition to the bandages mentioned a moment ago, he was reported as having uh, been caught drinking blood 
that had been drained from patients through a uh, venesection. And morgue workers claimed that they found him eating corpses on multiple occasions. Throughout all of this, Percy was attempting to treat Terrar and even fighting against other doctors. He felt really strongly that he really needed to be in an asylum. But nothing ever worked. Things continued in this pattern of unsuccessful treatment with Terrar getting in trouble with the hospital st- hospital staff and uh, and Percy advocating on his behalf until accusations were eventually leveled against Terrar that his doctor just could not save him from. So an infant went missing at the hospital, uh, and this was a baby just 14 months old, and the child simply vanished. And while there was no evidence that Terrar had been involved in this baby disappearing, all of his bizarre behavior before this incident culminated in the doctors and staff believing that the only possible explanation was that their insatiable patient had eaten a helpless baby. And he was never formally accused of any crime, but he was chased away from the hospital. His treatment was abruptly halted, and Monsieur Percy lost touch with his patient. Four years after Terrar was run out of the military hospital, uh, uh, Percy once again got word about his on-again, off-again patient. This time, the doctor was contacted by the chief surgeon of a hospital in Versailles. Terrar, who was 26 at this point, was gravely ill. He had been admitted to the hospital, and he had immediately begun asking for his former doctor. And we don't really know what he was up to in those four years between when he had been chased away from the military hospital and when he turned up in Versailles. But when Percy arrived at the hospital to see the patient, Terrar told him that he had swallowed a golden fork that he had stolen two years prior, and that he believed that this fork was still lodged somewhere in his intestine and was the cause of his illness. And he begged his doctor, Monsieur Percy, to give him something, some sort of laxative, anything that might force this obstructive utensil out. However, Monsieur Percy determined that whether or not there was a fork trapped inside of this man, the real issue was that he had contracted tuberculosis. Even though he'd always had this insatiable hunger, he had always appeared more or less healthy in appearance, although quite thin. It was evident that he was really at this point wasting away. Soon after his doctor's arrival, Tarar was stricken with a very persistent diarrhea and he died within a matter of days. And his corpse began to decompose at an unusually rapid rate, so much so that while all of the doctors at the hospital were fascinated with his case, most were unwilling to even get near his body, let alone examine it through dissection. And eventually, Monsieur Tessier, who was the chief surgeon that had contacted Percy and told him that his patient was there at Versailles, undertook the task in an effort to uncover clues about the deceased's unique biology. The findings of the autopsy were not particularly surprising, given what we already know about Terrar. His gullet was unusually wide, so wide that when Monsieur Tessier opened his jaws, he could see directly down into Terrar's stomach. Monsieur Percy later wrote of Terrar's body based on the findings of Monsieur Tessier, quote, His body, as soon as he was dead, became a prey to a horrible corruption. The entrails were putrefied, confounded together, and immersed in pus. The liver was excessively large, void of consistence, and in a putrescent state. The gallbladder was of considerable magnitude. The stomach, in a lax state and having ulcerated patches dispersed about it, covered almost the whole of the abdominal region. They did not find the fork that he had been sure that he had swallowed and was still in his body, and the rapidly decaying body's odor became so intense 
that the dissection could not continue. And the story of Tarar is one that, as we mentioned earlier, when you initially hear some of the more fantastic details, like the huge meals and the spy mission, it's compelling and it's fascinating. And it's even funny in some ways uh, in the way that gross things or bodily functions can sometimes elicit laughter. But as you look at the details of this man's really quite short life, it takes on a much more tragic air. For example, it appears that even though he didn't suffer from pica, which is a disorder characterized by the compulsion to eat objects that aren't food, just the same, he was often driven in desperation to eat things like hospital bandages in order to simply address the fact that he was ceaselessly hungry. Uh, yeah, it's one of those stories that just the more I think about it, the more sad I find the whole thing. And I can't imagine what a life like that would be like. You're kind of held hostage at that point by your medical condition. Yeah, and I didn't, because uh, after, after you sent the outline to me, I was like, this is so strange. I wonder if there are theories about what was going on. And I really didn't find like you'll you'll find medical speculation of, you know, did such and such really kill so and so person? And I didn't really find a lot of that with him. But it seems clear that he has to have had some kind of like metabolic or digestive system disorder. Yeah. Something serious going on that wasn't treated because they didn't know what it was or how. It is a thing that some modern doctors will speculate on, particularly, um, you know, there are hints that he had some sort of overclocked metabolic situation, uh, especially since his body seemed to continue to be kind of overburning even after he had died, as evidenced by his rapid decomposition. But again, we never really sussed out what the problem was there. Uh, so he remains a medical mystery probably forever. Uh, I have good news, Tracy. Is it some listener mail that is not tragically sad? It's listener mail that is not tragically sad and is utterly delightful and is a cool example of people combining art and technology. Are you ready? I am. Okay. Uh, Hold on. I got to pull something up on my phone to read it and you'll understand why in a second. So this comes from our listener, Carl, and he says, Dear Holly and Tracy, listening to your podcast episode about the history of knitting finally prompted me to combine two of my artistic passions and send you real live mail. I've emailed you a couple times to thank you for all you do, particularly in terms of highlighting issues of race and gender in the stories you present, but I felt that it was time to do something more concrete. I've been knitting for about 10 years now, and I've told people things about the history of knitting that I have now learned have been completely false. From now on, I will direct people who ask about it to your podcast episode. Uh, the po- postcard I'm sending you has a simple stockinette panel on the front knitted with a self-striping yarn called Unforgettable. The back is a stockinette and shell lace in a white yarn that was gifted from a friend. Since I know how much you love sewing, I stitched the address block to the piece using a blanket stitch. I'm actually showing this to Tracy now. This is what? the first she is seeing it. It's amazing. That's so pretty. Uh, but this is where it gets really cool. Uh, so I will f- finish reading his letter and then I will tell you about my hilarious reaction when I got it. Only hilarious okay. because it was filled with wonder. He says, this is not the first piece of art I have made to send through the mail. A friend in Atlanta named Michael got me into it a few years ago. I've mostly sent collages and drawings, though I did send a crocheted piece to a librarian friend once. You can see images of some of the pieces I've sent online. Mail art is an interesting practice that grew out of the fluxus movement of intermedia artists in the 1950s and 1960s, which was in turn influenced by Dadaism and the work of John Cage and Marcel Duchamp. Fluxus might make for an interesting podcast topic. I concur. That's my interjection. 
He says, I'm hoping that this reaches you in good shape, but part of the joy of mail art is seeing what happens to a piece in transit. If you could take photos of it and send them to me, even better, I'm going to post them on social media uh, so everyone can see. I would really appreciate it. He says, as always, thank you from the bottom of my heart, from all you do with Mist in History. Listening to the two of you is honestly one of my greatest joys. Be well. Okay, Carl, this is amazing. And so here's what happened. It came in an envelope, but one of those clear envelopes that, like, reveals the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I got it, and our wonderful office manager, Tamika, was with me, and I was like, what the heck is this? Like, how do this is really cool looking, but I don't know. And then I realized that Carl, that brainiac, had implanted a QR code what? on the knitting. It's printed out. It's not knitted into it, which would just be okay. extra mind-blowing. It's printed out, and it's stitched on with a blanket stitch. Uh, along with the, our address. And then when I pulled out my phone and activated the QR reader, it took me to that wonderful letter, which is on the Internet and not anything that came through the mail. That's awesome. Carl, I love you because I love stuff like this. Uh, one, his network, it's gorgeous. It's insanely beautiful. Like, it's perfect. Um, and two, it's just the coolest way to engage someone in a piece of art. And it... it I will treasure this forever. It's amazing. That's so, awesome. Yeah, I'm pr- my mind was pretty blown by it, and I have had it sitting on my desk ever since, and I keep looking at it, and I'll just reach out to touch it in a way that I can't even describe what I'm doing or what I'm trying to get out of it. Like, it's not mm-hmm. like I'm like, oh, it's not. It's, I just want to touch it. <laughs> because I have this amazing piece of living art sitting on my desk. And when Tracy comes back to Atlanta next time, she will get to have it on her desk for a little while, too. I won't be greedy, but it is very share. cool. It's so co- Carl. It's so cool. I love it. Um, not a listener mail, but I did want to give a, a shout out to uh, all of the people that I met. I was just in Anaheim for the Tinkerbell half marathon weekend. And I met a variety of lovely fans and really had just a delightful time talking to all of them. It was so sweet whenever someone would come up and say hi. And I just loved it. Um, so thank you to everyone who said hello and a couple hung out with me here and there. It was just a great time. So thank you for that. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at houseofworks.com. You can find us at facebook.com slash history on Twitter at History, on Pinterest at pinterest.com slash history. We are on Instagram at history. Basically, any of the social things, you can find us at history. If you would like to just do a little research for yourself, you can go to our parent site, How Stuff Works, or you can visit us at our site, which is mistinhistory.com, where you can find show notes for every episode that Tracy and I have worked on, as well as an archive of every single episode of Stuff You Missed in History class ever of all time from way back in the beginning when they were very short three to five minute segments up to the present day. Uh, we encourage you, come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not. Maybe you're relocating or having your first baby or leaving a relationship. Just starting or just starting over. On the road to somewhere, we talk about all of it, getting really honest. And we definitely laugh our way through it. That's the beauty of this journey. I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host the Bobby Bones Show, and I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at three o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C. Or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app.